All right, you all doing well this morning? Everybody good? Mark 14 is where we're gonna be. And I'm excited about this. If you've been around Ethos for any amount of time, I, I wanna just kind of clue you into something that maybe you've begun to notice is that every Sunday as we gather, every Sunday as we get together for worship, there is a bit of a rhythm. There's, there's a bit of a liturgy, as you'd say, although it is a very loose liturgy. There is a pattern to kind of what we do every time we gather. And so we come in on Sundays and the first thing we do is we stand up together and we meet each other. And that's not just this awkward thing we do to learn someone's name and then to instantly forget it. It's, it, it's this moment where we are symbolically and literally standing before the Lord saying we're here together and that this moment of worship is not just a vertical expression, it is a horizontal reality that we're in this together. And so every week we, we begin, we stand, and it's our way of saying, hey, we're all in this together, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, black, white, educated, uneducated. We stand together, we say we're in this. And then we'll sing some songs, this declaration. And the reason we sing songs is it is this proclamation that a group of people are becoming a family, are becoming a people with one heart, one voice. You know, we don't like to just stand in a room shoulder to shoulder and sing songs. It's, it's a declaration of who we're becoming. And then every week, someone will stand up and they'll open the scriptures and we'll talk about the redemptive, amazing work of God through the person of Jesus. And some weeks the sermon is good and some weeks it's terrible, but every week it points to Christ. And we talk about the glory of Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus. And then every week after we read the word of God together, we do this thing where we stand up again as one family and we go to the tables. Some of you go to the bar, but it's the table. You, you go to the table and you take the bread and you take the wine and you're reminded that the body and the blood of Christ was broken so that all people of all races, of all genders, of all stories, of all nations can have communion with God. And then we worship, and then we say our mission, and then we go into the city as people who are living out the story of a broken Christ, of a spilled out Christ, of a resurrected Christ, for the glory of a world that needs that kind of Christ. Does that make sense? So this morning, we're coming to Mark chapter 14, as we always do, we read the text, but here's the beauty of it. This picture of Mark chapter 14 is a picture of why it is that we go to the table every week. And so it's fitting, we're gonna talk about what does it mean to be a group of people that come to the table of the Lord. And we're gonna talk about this from the context of Mark 14, and then we're gonna pray, and then we're gonna stand, and then we're gonna go to the table, and we're gonna commune, not just with each other, but with the Lord. And then we're gonna worship, and we're gonna leave, and we're gonna invite other people to to return to this table with us next week. So there is this story that was sent to me by one of my good friends several months ago. There's a fascinating story about this unusual friendship between a 59-year-old woman named Mary Johnson and her 33-year-old neighbor, Israel O'Shea, and they live in North Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it's this unusual friendship. Uh, this reporter was kind of talking about what had unfolded between the two of them. And what made their friendship weird was not just the difference in their age and it's not just the way that they lived as neighbors. It was their background that made the story so compelling. And so Mary Johnson, just this phenomenal woman of God, loves the Lord, loves Jesus, loves God's people, loves serving people. Israel O'Shea was a guy that at the age of 16, by all practical purposes, had shipwrecked his life. When he was 16 years old, February of 1993, he found himself in a high school party in a suburb of North Minneapolis. 
He's there in the party, and in the midst of having too much to drink and teenage stupidity, he pulls out a gun, and he shoots his friend, Laramian, and kills him. He's tried as an adult, and for the next 17 and a half years, he spends those years locked up in a maximum security prison. Kind of in the midst of his stay there in prison, Mary Johnson, this 59-year-old woman, heard about a story. She started going to the prison, started visiting him, started praying for him, ministering to him, serving him. He gets out of prison. She's the one to pick him up. She's the one that helps him get back on his feet. She's the one that helps him get a job. She's the one that helps him find a place to live. And not just any place to live. She talks to her landlord and gets him into the apartment that's right next to hers. And it's this amazing story of grace. But the thing that really captured my my heart about the story was when they talked about how every week she would invite him into the home and that he would come in and he would eat a meal with her. And then he began to share the story about why that meal had become so formative and yet so weird because the reason Israel O'Shea was in prison for 17 years was because on that February night in 1993, the man he had killed was Mary's son, her only son. And she is the one who had met him in his brokenness, had walked with him through his darkness, had not only helped him get a job or a place, but was now inviting him to sit at her kitchen table. And he is talking about the guilt that he would feel every time he'd walk over to her house. He would come into that kitchen. He would sit down at the table. He would sit down at the seat that had formerly been occupied by her only son, the one that he had murdered. And he said that he had been overcome with the guilt of what he had done. But this is the phrase that, that had hit me. He said, every time I entered her house and sat down at her table, I was reminded the only thing stronger than my guilt was her grace. It was at the kitchen table that he kept discovering the only thing stronger on earth than guilt is grace. And I kept thinking about that all week as I read through Mark chapter 14 because the disciples are gonna find themselves in a moment where they are confronted with the magnitude of their guilt in regards to what they are getting ready to do to Jesus. But it's going to be at the dinner table of Christ that the people of Christ encounter not just the magnitude of their guilt, but they're going to encounter the magnitude of his powerful grace. And if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, because I know we come in here with different stories. I know you have different things going on. Some of you are hiding secrets that your wife or your husband don't even know. And the guilt of your life is overwhelming to some of you, but it is at the table of the Lord where you experience that the only thing stronger than that guilt is his grace. And this morning, we're not just gonna read about people that went to the table. We are going to be the people that go to the table as well. So Mark chapter 14, we're gonna start in verse 18. Just a little bit of context for you. We're at the point in the story where Jesus is about 24 hours away from his death on the cross. The disciples do not yet know that timeline. They don't know the way that this is getting ready to go down, but they find themselves sitting here at the Passover meal, which is the biggest celebration for the Jewish people during the days of Jesus, still the biggest celebration for the Jewish people today. And the Passover meal was this moment where they would come together each year and they would celebrate the fact that 2,000 years earlier, God had delivered their ancestors from bondage in Egypt. They'd sit down around the table and they would eat the lamb and they would eat the bread and they would drink the wine and they would take the bitter herbs and they'd be reminded that when their people needed God most, God came through with unlimited grace. And it's gonna be here as they celebrate the work of God's grace in their past that the glory and the goodness of God's grace is gonna have a collision with their present. 
and it's gonna change their future. I want you to see this. We're gonna start in verse 18 as we read through this together. It says, while they were reclining at the table, as they were eating, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were deeply saddened, they were heartbroken, their hearts were stirred, and one by one they said to Jesus, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the 12, he replied, one who dips the bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him had he not been born, talking about Judas there, verse 22. And while they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, and they all drank from it. And he said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many, he said. I'm telling you the truth. I will not drink from the fruit of the vine again until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In Matthew's gospel, he says, until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God, which is beautiful. Verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said, you will all fall away from me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I'm telling you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. This is the word of God out of Mark chapter 14. Now here's what I want us to notice as we prepare to go to the table. It's gonna be here at the table of the Lord that the disciples are gonna have a revelation that Jesus is gonna reveal something to them. And it's gonna be here at the table that this revelation is going to show them both the magnitude of their guilt and the magnitude of his grace. That at the table of the Lord, those two things collide, and when those two things collide, his grace wins. It's like a Mack truck hitting a kid on a bike. When the grace of God encounters the guilt of his disciples, it does a number on them. But before they can see the magnitude of grace, they have to see the magnitude of guilt. And so here they are. I want you to picture this. They're at the table. They're having the feast. They're thinking about the provision of God in their past. And it's in the midst of this joyous celebration. When you picture the Passover, don't picture the painting of them all sitting there sad. Don't picture Charlton Heston in the movie. Like when you picture the feast, picture laughter and celebration and joy. I mean, it was Thanksgiving on steroids. I mean, Passover was something you looked forward to. And it was in the midst of this joyous celebration that Jesus gets their attention and he reveals to them the magnitude of their guilt. He looks at them and he says, one of you will betray me. All of you are gonna fall away. Can you imagine this being at Thanksgiving dinner? Your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your friends, your family, you're all there, you're laughing, you're talking, you're catching up on, uh, on life, and your grandfather, who's the patriarch of the family, raises his glass, and he takes his fork, ding, 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 ding. He gets everybody's attention, and in the midst of the joy, he looks at the family and says, one of you tonight will cheat on your wife and all of our family will run. Talk about a mood killer. Talk about a buzzkill. But this is what Jesus says. He looks at him and he says, here's the deal. One of you will betray, all of you will fall, and this is so important. There's this moment at the table of the Lord where the disciples have to come nose to nose, face to face, with the magnitude of their guilt. 
And no longer is their sin, is their guilt something foreign and distant, something that they talk about in theory. It is up close, it is personal, it is theirs to own. And Jesus is making it clear that, bef- that when he goes to the cross, he's not just going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. Jesus is going to the cross to die for the sins of his friends. And that Jesus did not just come to die for the most despicable people of Nashville. He did not come to just die for the most despicable people of our country or or, or our world. Jesus came to die for those who consider themselves the friends of God. And that if nobody else existed in this city other than the people at Ethos Church, we would need the blood of Christ and the body of Christ to save us. And Jesus looks at the disciples And he says, I want you to come face to face. I want you to come into the kitchen. I want you to sit down at the table of the one and only son. I want you to sit here and I want you to experience the magnitude of your guilt. Now, I want you to really hear me clearly, especially if you grew up in church. Make sure you tune in right now, okay? The table of the Lord is not about guilt. The table of the Lord is about his grace. But until we make the choice to take ownership of our guilt, we will never have the freedom to enjoy his grace. Until we really sit under the weight of this reality that every one of us have sold him out, every one of us have fallen away, every one of us have run, until we own the weight of that guilt, walking to the table and taking the bread and taking the wine is nothing more than a dead religious ritual that you do before you sing some more songs. And Jesus invites them, he reveals, see who you are. But here's the beauty, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with the guilt. He says, I want you to see the magnitude of my grace. Look how Jesus responds. Let's jump back to the text real quick, verse 22. Right after he drops this bomb on them, that they're gonna fall away, that they're gonna dishonor him. He says, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, take it. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank, and he said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. And he said to them, I'm telling you the truth. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. I go, how does Jesus respond to the guilt of his disciples? How would you have responded here? Just think about this. If you were in Jesus' shoes, what would you have done in this moment? If you had taken the last three years, every moment, every waking moment to serve, to love, to care for, to provide for these men, and then here you are three years later, and you know that one of them is going to sell you out for five months worth of his salary, 30 pieces of silver, and that the rest of them are going to dishonor you and disown you and flee. I go, how would you respond? I'll tell you how I'd respond. I'd kick them out, I'd cuss them out. I'd look for a new group of disciples, I'd look for a new group of friends. I'd pray for them in my house church, because that's what Christians do. I wouldn't be friends with them. When the disciples are at their very worst, Jesus is at his very best. And when they let him down, Jesus invited them in. I want you to see this. This is so important. Jesus is so different than you. (laughs) Jesus is so different than me. 
And there are these moments in the scripture where we come face to face with just how different he is. And I go, thank God he's different. Thank God that Jesus is not like Dave. Thank God that Jesus is not like you. When we're at his, our worst, Jesus is at his very best. When we betray him, in our moment of cosmic treason, in, in eternal disloyalty, Jesus gives us his undivided loyalty. And he makes this gesture that is lost on us 2,000 years later. In the midst of their guilt, he gives them the grace by extending the bread and extending the cup. In the days of Jesus, it was more significant who you ate with than who you mated with. Who you ate with was a statement about who you were for or who you were with. In the Jewish tradition during the days of Jesus, when a man would propose to his wife, he would talk to her father and mother. He would pay the dowry. He would prepare the place where they would live. And then he would return to ask for her hand in marriage. And there was this beautiful tradition during the days of Jesus where the man would get down on his knee. He would extend the cup of the covenant. And instead of buying her a ring that he would put on her finger, they went with a much cheaper option, which I wish we, we need to get biblical. Let's, let's go back to the, the cup of the covenant. The man would get down on his knee. He would hand the cup of the wine and say, hey, will you be in this with me? I go, what does Jesus do in their guilt? He proposes. He proposes to us. He gets on a knee and says, I know everything about you, and I want you. I know everything you've done. I know everything you will do, and I want you at the dinner table. The cross is the place where Jesus dealt with our guilt. The table is the place where he invites us to walk in the grace of a guilt that has been dealt with. And when the early church got a hold of this idea, it changed everything. It went off like a bomb in their midst. Instead of gathering once a year to take the Passover, they started gathering literally every day as Acts chapter two, verses 42 through 47 says, they get off work and they get together and like, let's do that Passover thing again. Let's, let's do that meal. Let's come to the table of grace again. And they'd sit down and it wasn't a funeral meal. It was a wedding banquet. It was a celebration that I was in prison and the Lord met me in prison after I'd killed his only son. And he took me out and he made a way and he brought me to the table and they would sit down and they would feast and they would celebrate and they would laugh and they would dance and they'd go back into the world. And they'd say, do you realize that God has done everything that needs to be done through the person of Jesus so that you can come to the table of grace? And they discovered the joy that there was no place in the world more joy-filled, more secure, more inclusive than the table of the Lord. So the early church would come around it over and over and over and over again. And can you imagine what would happen if we really as a church family understood what it was that we're getting ready to go do in a minute? Like this is not a ritual. I know we do it every week and sometimes it gets cold and stale because we do it every week. This is not about just pinching off a piece of bread and taking a bit of juice and making ourselves feel guilty. <laughs> This is about us standing up, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, black, white, educated, uneducated, standing up together saying only the grace of Jesus could do this. Only the grace of Jesus could bring me home. And we walk together to the table and we take the bread and we take the cup and it is a celebration of joy. 
It is a declaration that yes, I was guilty, and yes, God's grace is greater. It is at the table when we go here in a few minutes that the grace of God collides with our guilt, and it produces joy. It doesn't just produce joy. I want you to notice this. When you understand what Jesus is saying here, it also produces security. And so I love what Jesus says as Matthew records it in his gospel. Jesus looks at him and he says, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not going to take the communion again until I take it anew with you in the kingdom of God. That's key. Jesus has just told them all of them are getting ready to fail. And Jesus says, I want you to hear this. Your failure will not forfeit your future in my kingdom because I'm faithful. He looks at him and says, listen, be secure. Be secure in the work of God because what Jesus has done is sufficient. And your failings are not strong enough to forfeit your future in his kingdom because he is faithful. And so we walk to the table each week with a sense of joy. We walk to the table with a sense of security. And we walk to the table with a sense of humble inclusivity. Because every person belongs around the table of the Lord because he is the Lord of the table. I remember several years ago, right after we started Ethos, there was a man in our church who, from the outside, it was easy to tell that he did not have his life together. And I remember every week he would show up in a variety of stages and states, and after the teaching of God's word, he would join us at the table. And I remember one night in particular, after one of our worship gatherings, a young man um, came up and he said, I just don't know if he needs to be going to the table in the state that he's in. And I understood where that brother was coming from because I used to think the same thing because to be honest, I used to think that going to the table was a reflection of my goodness. We go to the table not as a reflection of our goodness. We go to the table as a reflection of Jesus' goodness. And the reason all are welcome at that table is because Jesus is the Lord of that table. Jesus makes the guest list. Jesus has died for the guest list. Jesus has raised for the guest list. Don't let anyone negate the invitation that Jesus has given you. And we celebrate with joy and security and humble inclusivity as we come together around the body and the blood of Jesus. And Jesus says, take this in. Take it in. Take this grace all the way in. Let it get a hold of you. Let it change you. And so as we go to the table, you, you have to decide, okay, okay, what, what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your failings each week as you go to the table? And I go, you can do what the disciples do. You look at what the disciples do in the scriptures. You know, some of them deflect their guilt, right? So Jesus says, when are you going to betray me? And they all start deflecting. Surely not me. Like, not, not going to be me. Maybe it's Hubie. No, maybe it's Josh. Maybe it's Molly. You know, it's like they started deflecting. And some of you, your whole lives, you've been taught, here's how you deal with your guilt. You just deflect it. You blame it on your culture. You blame it on your parents. You blame it on the system. You blame it on the man, whoever it is. Your failing is not your fault, right? And you can deal with your guilt the way the disciples did. You can deflect it. Or you can do what Peter did. You can just deny it. You can say, oh, man, I'm not going to do this, Lord. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I haven't done anything. I'm good. You can deflect it. You can deny it like Peter did. You can do what Judas will do later. He's going to destroy himself with guilt. Do you remember the way the story ends for Judas? 
We'll see this in a few weeks as we read the scriptures. Judas can't handle the guilt of what he's done, so he kills himself. And some of you literally are in the process right now of destroying yourselves because of the guilt that is in your life. And I go, what do you do with the guilt as you walk to the table of grace? Do you deflect it? Do you deny it? Do you destroy yourself in it? Or do you do what Jesus invites you to do? And that is disclose it, confess it, share it. (laughs) Because you have the joy and security of knowing that he's already sent out the guest list and you still have a future in the kingdom. And it's at the table of grace that we disclose the guilt of our lives and then we dine with the king of kings. In a minute, we're not just taking the bread and we're not just drinking the cup. We are feasting with God. And I'm convinced that the way we do this at Ethos is still not the way it needs to be done, that we're still missing something. And we gotta figure out how do we feast with the Lord with joy and with celebration. But I wanna invite you here in a second. We're gonna stand up and no matter your story, to go to the table, to take the bread and to take the cup. And I wanna give you two questions to wrestle with as you talk out loud with the people, as we commune together, as we celebrate. Here's two questions I wanna give you to, to talk about out loud. First question is this. When have you needed the grace of God in your life? When have you needed the grace of God in your life? And you're gonna be tempted to talk about something in general, I needed the grace of God in high school, didn't we all? Like, I wanna encourage you, name it. When have you needed the grace of God? Second question, when have you experienced that grace of God through the person of Jesus? When have you experienced the grace of God? When have you needed it? When have you experienced it? As we stand and as we walk to the table, We are all Israel O'Shea walking into the house of the one whose only son we sold out to die. The good news is that son is back. And that son is seated at this table. And that son is here to welcome you in. If you're not a follower of Jesus, go to the table, listen to the stories that are being told by the followers of Jesus, place your faith in Jesus, be baptized, be filled with the Spirit, and bring other people back to the table of grace. His grace is stronger than our guilt. Let's celebrate that today. Not heads down, not hearts full of sorrow, but lives that have been released into the joy of who God is. Let's stand together, I'm gonna pray over you, and then we're gonna walk to the table in joy, in security, in humble inclusivity for the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the table of grace. Thank-